volume of a two-part series written by a man named Luke. Uh, the first was actually the Gospel account of Jesus' life um, written by Luke. And so this morning, Matt's going to help us learn from the, uh, the next section. And again, during this talk, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to put those in on Slido, and Matt and I will attempt to answer them the best we can at the end of this. So with that being said, over to you, Matt. Have to take off the mask without taking off mic. Always a little bit challenging. Hi, my name's Matt. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here at Hope City, and uh, it is my privilege to get to speak to you this morning. And uh, together, we're going to think about what we can learn from the next section uh, of the Bible that we're looking at. So, um, I wanted to start just by recognizing that we live in a world that is absolutely filled with trouble. You just have to watch the news for precisely one moment to see there are so many bad stories. There are so many the media can't even keep up with them all and keep them in its head at one time. So things quickly disappear from our news and we don't get reminded of them week after week. But the truth is, they're still there. Um, Think about the coup in Myanmar or the the war going on in Syria or drug violence in Colombia or oppression and famine in North Korea. We live in a whole world that is filled up with trouble. And it seems like sometimes, doesn't it, we're right on the cusp of things spiraling out of control. That like we're just about holding civility and ordinary life together, but it's on a, on a, on a knife edge and it might break at any moment. How do you cope with a world that has so much trouble as this? Well, you can just shrug your shoulders and let it fill you with cynicism. You can say, you know what, life sucks, deal with it. Or you can try and ignore it, just unplug in and check out, live the escapist life, throw yourself into making sourdough, you know, or, or um, the latest video game, or just trying to make it through the day, right? For a lot of us, life itself is a big enough challenge. We hardly have time to think about anything else going on. Or you could even dare to hope for change. Maybe you think we could get just a few bad apples out out of the big seats they're occupying and put reasonable, ordinary, decent people in their place. Maybe we could change those at the top or, or maybe you have to change those at the bottom instead. Maybe it's a different way to go about it. We need more education. We need more technology. We need more democracy. But really, it's so easy to feel powerless in the face of this much trouble. So how do you cope with a world filled with trouble? Well, today... That is excellent. Today, we're going to, by the way, um, if you're on the stream, there's like an earthquake coming from Kids Church, which is really rather good fun. And we cope with it just fine. <laughs> I think they just ran into the wall. I hope nobody's injured. That was quite a thump there. So we're continuing our journey through the story of the earliest churches, as it's recorded in the Bible. One thing's for sure, those earliest churches were living in a world of trouble as well. We're coming to the end of a little story arc here, which started um, with a guy called Saul on a mission to totally destroy the church, like a bull in the china shop. He's going around smashing things up, and he starts with the ugly death of one of the church's rising leaders and leading lights, and then we see a vicious wave of persecution break out. The church is scattered and shattered. Everyone goes to the four winds, but even running away isn't enough. This guy, Paul, he is coming after them. And then out of the blue, sorry, this guy's Saul. Saul has his famous Damascus Road uh, experience. Jesus stops him in his tracks, turns his world upside down. Jesus takes the church's arch enemy, a notorious Christian killer, and he forgives him. What happens next? 
in that world of trouble where lots of things get turned upside down. Now listen with me as Elle is going to read to us this morning from Acts chapter 9. Saul in Damascus and Jerusalem. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch in the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him and by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit increased in numbers. Thanks very much, Al. So what happens next in this story? Well, first up, the persecutor becomes preacher. Did you notice that as El read? We heard this, we heard, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. At once he began to preach. He's up and he's out of the starting blocks like a tiger. You would have thought it might be wise to take some time to get your head around things, given your world has just been totally turned upside down, but no. Now, it's often true, actually, that those newest to the faith are often the most vocal about it. But it's worth remembering here, as you think about Paul rushing into the synagogues and standing up and starting to preach, it's worth remembering that he isn't just anyone. Elsewhere in the Bible, we learn that he spent years training as an elite Jewish preacher under the best of the best in Jerusalem. So standing up and speaking in a synagogue, that's like his first language. That's first nature to him. That's exactly what he trained for. That's exactly what he was used to doing. That's exactly what he would be perfectly placed to do as he arrives. I'm down there in Damascus. Now, it's not what you see every new convert to Christianity doing as you follow through this story in Acts, though. So, The persecutor becomes a preacher. Now, Damascus, the city he lands in, is absolutely shocked. The the one they thought was going to be the chief opponent of the Christians turned out to be the chief proponent instead. They, They knew what he had done back in Jerusalem. They knew what he was planning to do as he arrived there in Damascus. And instead, here he is, best buddies with the Christians, arguing their corner, taking their side, hanging out with them. Um... Jesus, he says, is the son of God, not just another rebel, not just another fake. Jesus is the Messiah, he says, that is the promised one of God, the chosen one, the holy one, the one who's going to come and fix everything. 
The Jews are baffled, and it's no wonder that they're baffled because that is a huge turn up, a huge overturning of what was going to happen. But when Saul gets to Jerusalem, our story focuses on how the church there struggles to believe it. Not the, the, the Jewish people, but it's the church there that struggles to believe. And that totally makes sense because in, in Damascus, it's just the guy they heard about doing bad things who shows up. When he gets back to Jerusalem, it's the guy who did it who shows up. The guy who arrested your friends. The guy who killed them. Can you really believe he's changed that much? Is it just a a clever ruse to get onto the inside of this kind of a Trojan horse? Saul the Trojan horse gets onto the inside of the church and then destroys it all? By the way, if you're wondering how the church can be shattered and scattered in Jerusalem, and yet when Saul gets back there, the church seems to be there again, well, they're three years tucked away between verses 22 and 23. You can see that if you look closely at the text, because in verse 19, when he's first in Damascus, he spends several days with the disciples, just several days. Um, But in verse 23, he gets into trouble there after many days. And in between those two, he's been away into Arabia before coming back to Damascus, getting in trouble, and then heading out to Jerusalem. If you want to hear more about that, we record a little kind of detailed background during the week and push it out onto our Facebook channel. And if you go look on Facebook, you can see that kind of detailed background that will give you more of what's going on behind the scenes there. But speaking of trouble, that is our next stop because the persecutor becomes the preacher, right? But then immediately after that, the preacher becomes the persecuted. Lots of different words used in this passage for the way Saul is presenting his new message about Jesus. He's preaching, he's proving, he's speaking boldly, he's talking, he's debating. So he's not just preaching in these kind of Jewish religious gatherings. He's also trying to make a case. He's trying to win an argument. He's trying to convince people. He's trying to bring them around to his view. Our kind of modern christian term for that is apologetics. That's what we would talk about, giving a reason for things. And, and Saul, it turns out, is a smart dude, and he's well-taught. Um, so we've got reason for us to be hopeful that he might do quite a nice job of this argument. But it'll turn out... Um, that there's no amazing breakthrough reported here. That's not the author's focus. Instead, we read, in Damascus, what happened? Well, they conspired to kill him. In Jerusalem, what do they do? They try to kill him too. I think there's a pattern emerging here. It's not exactly an advert for that kind of arguing, debating side of things, is it? Both times, he's on his way to getting dead. Um, Not that I'm saying it's a bad idea to be able to argue or make reasonable arguments for what we believe. The, The Bible encourages us to do that, and it really can be done very effectively. I just think this tells us that we've got to be realistic about how we think that's going to work out because Saul is kind of in some ways the best of the best at this and he ends up getting killed rather than getting converts. So um, how might people respond to that? Now today, it's probably a challenging place to be as well. Not that it's hopeless, but a challenging place to be. And it'll turn out that Jesus has other plans for Saul. So the trouble that comes from him in Jerusalem, what it does is it pushes him on into God's next phase of the plan for him. One last stop in our journey this morning. Okay, so the persecutor becomes the preacher. The preacher becomes the persecuted. And then you get this really surprising finish where persecution becomes peace. That's a bit of a surprise, really. Saul, the persecutor turned preacher, manages to get himself in trouble. Perhaps that's because he was right at the heart of the persecution beforehand, changing sides, so they're particularly peeved with him. But either way, once he's off, into the distance, um, going up to Tarsus, where we'll find him later, the church enjoys uh, a time of peace, we read. 
The church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. This is the, the end of this particular story arc of persecution that we've been working through. So persecution both started by Saul, and so it seems the persecution is finished by Saul as well. And the church isn't destroyed through it. The church instead is multiplied through it. Through it, the church has exploded, right? It's the second phase of Jesus' three-phase plan. Right at the beginning of this book, Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses, you disciples, in Jerusalem, then in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And this is kind of the Judea and Samaria checkmark. The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. So that second phase is done. And through it, the seeds have been sown for the third phase as well. This isn't actually the last we're going to see of this guy, Saul. He's going to have a big role to play in that going on towards the end of the earth. So, preacher, persecution, peace. Three Ps, cool, right? I must be a preacher type. Um, But we're not them. We're not there. We're not then. So what does this have to say for us? I've got two things for you this morning. First... I think it's really important that we see that God works even through great trouble. Because make no mistake, what the church had there was great trouble. And remember, we started, we were thinking about a world that's filled with trouble and how we can respond to that. Without God in the picture, our troubled world is just our problem. There's no one else to blame. There's no one else to help. We could dream of fixing it, but let's be real. A lot of people have tried to fix a lot of things for a lot of years, and obviously, it's still mega broken. Are things really any better than they were a generation back? Do you really believe they'll be significantly better a generation ahead? So we could just grow cynical, like we talked about at the beginning, figuring it's just the way it's going to be. You know, life sucks, and then you die. Or we could try and hide from it in escapism. Life sucks, so just don't bother. Let's do something else, thanks. Just check out. There aren't really that many ways to process and to respond to our troubled world without God in the picture. Now, thinking back to this situation we've been reading about and thinking about, that bout of persecution the church went through, there is no question it was dreadful. Right? It scattered everyone but the apostles from Jerusalem. People went to prison. People died. This is not light stuff. It was great trouble, but... With God in the picture, we've got a reason to hope, even in the face of great trouble. Because we know it's not just random, it's not just out of control, and it's not fundamentally beyond repair. God worked through this great trouble, and he can work through our great troubles today too. We can have that confidence because through Jesus, we can rightly call God our Father, and we know our Father has all the power, He's filled with all the goodness, and he has all the love for us there is. Now, it is still trouble we go through. That's not the way he's organized the world to make it easy, a walk in the park. It still hurts. People still went to prison here. People still died here. But as Christians, what we do have is the right to trust that God knows what he's doing in our troubles. Even when we don't, right? Even when it's completely beyond us. Now, it's not easy to do that. I think it is easy to be trite here and say things that are true, um, but 
you know, I, I know a lot of you actually have really serious trouble in your life, troubles that bring great pain, troubles where you just don't understand what God is doing, troubles where it's hard to believe that there could be anything good that's going to come out of this. I know lots of Christians around the world face the most desperate troubles. People are going to lose their lives today because of their faith. But the logic still holds, okay? If, through Jesus, God is your Father, your Father does have all the power, He is filled with all the goodness, and He does have all the love for you that there is. These things are true. So even in the darkness of the storm, you really do have a justification to hope. As we saw played out for us here, God works even through great trouble. I bet at the start of this persecution, they weren't going, whoop-be-doop, persecution, this is going to advance the church. When their friends went to prison, they weren't thinking, this is fabulous. But God did work through it. Now, if you don't know God as your father through Jesus, but if you wish there was a better story than this world is just a crazy mess and it's all out of control, I'm really glad you're here this morning. Because there is a better story. There's a world where somebody is in control. Someone powerful. Someone good. Someone who is loving. And that can be your story too. You can change tracks in a moment here. Look at this guy Saul, right? One day, he's like, no way, Jesus, I'm going to kill you all. The next day, he's like, no way but Jesus, I'm going to tell you all. That's how fast he can change tracks. And you can change your mind about Jesus too. And you can do it today, and you can do it right now. And the Bible's language around this is repent and believe. That's how the Bible talks about this switch of direction. First step, repent. That just means turn around. Change direction, admit, I was going the wrong way. I'm sorry, I do want to go the right way now. So repent. And then the second step is believe. Believe the story really could be this good. Believe that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, did everything right where we do things wrong, then died for everything wrong that we do. That he's our Messiah, that is, that he saves us from death through his death and brings us into new life through his resurrection, into God's family through his resurrection. That's what gives you the right to have hope in this world that even though it's troubled, it's going to be okay. It doesn't make all the troubles go away, right? But it does change everything. So what I want to do right now is just press on this for a minute, and I'm going to read out a really short prayer. And as I read it, you can just say this to God inside your head if you're ready, and he'll hear you. It's a short one. You can see all the words there. I'll read it, say it to God, and we'll do this now. God, I was going the wrong way, and I'm sorry, I want to go the right way. Thank you that Jesus did everything right, yet took the punishment for all my wrong when he died on the cross. Thank you that when Jesus rose into new life, I can share that new life in your family because of him. I want to follow you now, so as best as I know how, I give you my life. Amen. Did you pray? If you did, we would love to connect with you. We would love to help you take your first steps in this new life. If you're in the room this morning, please talk to someone. Talk to somebody you came with. Talk to somebody you know. Or talk to me if uh, you like. If you're on the live stream, there's a little button 
in the chat right now where you can click to raise your hand and that will give you the option to connect with somebody at Hope City. If you're watching a recording, just send us an email. We would love to be in touch. I'm Matt at hopecityedinburgh.org. Let us help you take first steps in this new life. So God... God works through great trouble. If God is your father, then you have the right to trust that even in trouble, he is working through it. It can be a real comfort to have him as father in the troubled world. Second, second thing this morning, those who are forgiven much, love much, I think that's one of the things you see in the story we've been looking at. Jesus tells a story about two guys. One owes a little bit of money and can't pay it back. Another one owes an absolute heap of money and he can't pay it back. The moneylender lets both of them off. Who's going to love him more, Jesus asks. Which one's it going to be? Well, it's those who've been forgiven much, who love much, of course. So think about this guy Saul we've been talking about. Like In his unrelenting attempts to share the hope of Jesus anywhere and everywhere he goes, no matter what comes his way, I think we see him loving much. And that makes sense because it throws out of him naturally being one who's been forgiven much. Saul needed a lot of forgiving, right? Now, Maybe you did not put people in prison or have them killed. I, I kind of hope you didn't. Um, but some of us know what it is to have done grave wrongs in our past, to have been impossibly far from God, to feel like there is no way someone like me could have anything to do with a good and holy God like that, and then to be forgiven. Now, if you've been forgiven much like that, you should love much. But this got me to thinking, well, what if you don't feel you've been forgiven that much? What if your faith story was just much less dramatic, much more ordinary? What if your life before Jesus came into it was just kind of okay? No big black marks. Or maybe, maybe you don't even really have a before. Right? Maybe, maybe you were raised in the faith and you haven't strayed that far. How does this work for you? Do you just get to love little because you've only been forgiven little and so you should go out and get some big buck sins? And wrongs and forgiven so you can love some more on the way back? Of course not. Part of the problem is the way we price up our wrongs. Right? We put some price tags on things that are huge to God and we say, not that big a deal. Part of the problem is that we just don't appreciate how big an issue things are. The truth is that every single believer has been forgiven unfathomable wrongs against God's absolute utter holiness and glory. But as I've been thinking about this this week, I've been thinking about, in practice, how do we come to feel more of the forgiveness that we have experienced? And I had an idea that might help. I was thinking, being deliberate about seeing and celebrating not just God's saving grace and our past before we came to Jesus, but being deliberate about celebrating his ongoing grace towards us as well. See, the day you decide to follow Jesus, the day you decide to make that switch, isn't the end of getting things wrong. My life following Jesus still has plenty of mess. I still get plenty of things wrong. Sometimes I get them wrong badly, and I can pretend that I don't get stuff wrong. I can cover it up. That doesn't do me any good at all. It doesn't help me love God more. It doesn't free me from those things. I can go around hitting myself with a big stick saying, bad Matt, bad Matt. Apart from making me feel down, That doesn't help very much either. This is what the Bible teaches us to do instead. It says, well, if we claim to be without sin, if we say nothing wrong with me, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, that means saying sorry to God for them, then he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So when I say sorry to God 
for these ongoing things that are still part of my life. When I see them and I try and fix them and I say sorry, I can feel a rush of relief. I'm no longer separated. But I can go one step further. Can I somehow count that ongoing grace? Can I see again, wow, God is good to me. I've been forgiven more. Can I love more in response to that? That's what I'm going to be trying this week. And I would encourage you, try something like that. How can we love more? Well, we can recognize that we've been forgiven more. Try and be deliberate about recognizing God's ongoing grace shown to you. Try and cultivate love for him in response. Because those who are forgiven much, love much. Now, I'm just going to give us a few seconds to reflect on what I've been talking about this morning. And then uh, we'll pray together. Just a few seconds to reflect quietly. Let's pray together. Father God, I know that um, there are many uh, around the world who follow you and yet live uh, in the middle of great trouble. I know there are people uh, in our church who live in the middle of great trouble. Oh God, please, would you give us the encouragement and the strength to believe that you are at work even in great trouble. Give us that comfort, please. Help us to trust that you are powerful, you're good, and that you love us. And God, I pray that you would help us to love you back. Help us to see your goodness towards us. Forgiving us all the wrong things we did before we turned to you, but forgiving us day by day as we continue to fail. As we see and know your forgiveness, thank you that it's real and true. Please, would you grow in us love for you. Amen. Now we're going to listen together now to a song um, from 